Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. And this is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight's guest is Susan Ramsey. She's an attorney at McLaughlin and Stern. And she has spoken and presented publications for numerous organizations, including nursing, professional lawyer associations. She has published several articles for nursing journals and legal publications. Mrs. Ramsey is an active member of the American Association of Nurse Attorneys, National Crime Victims Bar Association, American Justice Association, Palm Beach County Bar Association, Palm Beach County Justice Association, and the Florida Justice Association. Mrs. Ramsey is a Florida licensed healthcare risk manager. She has received several awards for community service, including the Arnold Markle Award for the Judicial District in New Haven, Connecticut for her work with survivors of sexual assault. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm glad you're taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today. I understand you were at in Boston recently at a conference. And what brought you up to that conference? So I've been a member of the National Crime Victims Bar Association since essentially since its inception, of, I think maybe 20 years ago. And um that organization is a, an organization of, of lawyers who represent crime victims, sometimes in criminal actions, but in civil actions. Um, again, sometimes the perpetrators of the sexual assault and sometimes third parties who may have had a role in not sexually assaulting it, but allowing the conditions to be such that that terrible event happens. And that's that organization. And I'm a very happy member of that group because I do represent survivors of different types of catastrophic events. You do this pro bono or is this a, a paid kind of thing? Well, it depends on the situation. I have certainly re represented crime victims um, in in just being with them when they go through the criminal process and, and not charge them. Sometimes there are cases in which uh, I bring actions really in negligence against third parties for not providing adequate security or things of that nature that allow for crime to happen. Have you um, gone after any doctors in regards to the opioid epidemic where they were, were not doing their proper job or over over um, uh, over prescribing it's it's interesting it's, it's an interesting question and um I have looked at some of those cases and there are usually barriers to bringing these types of cases at least in Florida and there was a great deal of misunderstanding about substance use disorder for example when the first cases, that other lawyers brought against the opioid manufacturers on behalf of individuals, right, and or their surviving family, juries were not very empathetic 
to the person who had substance use disorder, they were in the camp of, well, you know, they took the drugs, they died. That's what happens when you are a drug addict or you you have substance use disorder. You know, you are responsible for your own injuries and death. You know, what that lacks is an understanding of what substance use disorder is and what are the other um, mental illnesses that that go with them. So the short answer is those cases weren't successful because of that really prejudice and misunderstanding among the population about what it, it, it was. Unfortunately, you know, the opioid epidemic was affected everyone. There were no groups of people who were immune, if you will, from, you know, losing family members or being injured by, you know, mass opiate use. So that's really sort of part of my mission now. And I'm pretty open about my own experiences with substance use disorder and trauma and that and the like, because I think that it needs to be said by more than one person. So for example, up on my shelf, you see the triangle that holds um, a medallion from an AA group. So I, I am not embarrassed or ashamed to say that I am a sufferer of substance use disorder and uh, the underlying mental illnesses that went there, went with that or produced that. And now, you know, I talk about myself in terms of being in uh, long-term recovery or remission from my acute substance use disorder, which in large part, at least what ended it for me were opiates and prescription opiates. So, and it's been a long time, but I think that there's still a lot of misunderstanding and, you know, prejudice against people who suffer from this disorder. Well, it is a disease and people, there's, the stigma is, is way bad and, you know, if somebody had a, another type of disease and, and died from it from a doctor who was not treating them properly, uh, they'd be a whole different thing if you had type 2 deep diabetes or if you had some right. type of cancer or something. And then when it comes to opioids, they don't understand that the, the drug abuses the patient. The patient doesn't abuse the drug. And that, that's a big, a big factor. So would you say juries are getting now more sympathetic? more I, understanding I, I do think that I think the general public is understanding more and more about substance use disorder I mean it's uh it's a brain it's a disease of the brain just like other diseases you know if I have diabetes I have a disease of my pancreas if I have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease I have a disease of my lungs right and those can those are chronic forever diseases. It has to do with how we approach it and how we can manage it. You know, and you brought up a really good point about, you know, who's in charge or what in terms of the opiate phenomena. I mean, but but to understand the phenomena of craving and what happens when you are using, even if you started legitimately using opiate pain medication or other things related to that, you develop a tolerance. 
So over time, it takes more and more of the opiate to do less and less in terms of pain relief because your body becomes tolerant to it. So, you know, what happens a lot of times is that, you know, people keep upping the ante and or they may not get the medications that they were getting prescribed by their their physician and they're willing to go and get supplemented with things that are not, you know, legal and are very high risk given the fentanyl situation in the country now. So, you know, people ordinarily who might buy something, even heroin, you know, it's laced with fentanyl and, you know, you, it doesn't take much to cause an overdose and unfortunately a death. So that I think is also bringing the spotlight back to really what we're talking about. You know, we're talking about the the death of a of a, a generation that and and the consequences of that. So what are we gonna do to sort of fix it and move it to the right, you know, to where we're getting, we're seeking recovery, we're seeking help. We're supporting those who suffer from this illness. Are you, are you familiar with Richard Sackler and Purdue Farmer and the whole story? If you watch sure. dope, the boat Dope Sick, or you know the story anyway through lawsuits. Um, right. A couple of weeks ago, the the Supreme Court decided to rule that the Sackler family would would be would be held accountable or could be held accountable. Um, as an attorney, how would you go about it if you had a client that wanted to go after Richard Sackler? How would you do it criminally if you had an opportunity? Well, I wouldn't be able to do it criminally. It would be like either the U.S. Attorney's Office or an individual state attorney's office. Um, you know, I do think there has been a lot of talk about that in different states, right, from the attorney generals of the state and other individuals who are, are you know, looking into this huge problem. Uh, the Sacklers' immunity is, and I can't really speak to all the legal issues because I'm not that far in the weeds about that, but it seems simple to me, and I know it isn't, you know, I mean, they were largely responsible for all of this in terms of the epidemic extent and the availability. And you know that. I mean, you know, they yeah. relied on, you know, some a, a newsletter and a letter to the editor in I think it was the New England Journal of Medicine. Like if you are a patient in legitimate pain, you're not going to become addicted you know, that's not true. And that was definitely the, you know, that was for their profits, right? I mean, they weren't doing it to be the saviors of people who had, were suffering pain. They were doing it to sell billions of dollars of this drug. So they, I mean, if, it, if I thought that you could get past all the other, um, you know, insulations in terms of the company and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I'd I would personally love to sue them. Uh, but it's not an easy thing to do given all the different wranglings and and levels of, of protection they have under their corporations and what have you. Um, so I mean, if someone 
smarter than me wants to bring a case against the Sacklers, I'm like, I'll be right on board with that. You know, down here in Florida, there's been a lot of grassroots organizations that, you know, protest in front of some of their properties that they have here in Palm Beach County and try, you know, try to bring as much light to what they're doing as as possible. But I mean, tragically, they're a, a you know, a very, very wealthy family who got much, much wealthier and, you know, with apparently no regard for what happens to the rest of us. So, yeah, I think there's a case. Just how to get there, I couldn't articulate. Yeah, um, Maura Healy, when she was our attorney general, did bring the case, but they, right. they kind of set that case aside when they did the bankruptcy, saying that they would have immunity. But now the bankruptcy is no longer in play. So I think it's, uh, they, as they say in game on, you know, it's time I, I, to go back and start over again and get this thing where it should be. And uh, I'm hoping that some attorney general or some right. somewhere along the line, they're, they're going to they're going to put this together and go after them. It's, I would know. be a big supporter of that because yeah. that is the truth. I mean, the tragedy is that it was, you know, people were always, there are always going to be people who have substance use disorder, whether you had the opiates or not, but it's, it's literally was gasoline on fire. Right. I mean, really, it just exploded because of the false advertising and representations to even the prescribing physicians, you know, and there were a number of physicians who were very much uh, taken by the information. And I, I'll share this story about myself as well. So, yeah. you know, I, uh, a registered nurse, lawyer, and I got injured and I went to the friendly orthopedic surgeon and I have, you know, I have an MRI with herniated discs. And I, you know, was he started me on maybe Darvaset or something, but it quickly escalated because it was the time that this was being promoted as, hey, if you have pain, this is you're not going to have trouble with this. Truth, truth be known, you know, in the back of my head as a registered nurse, I'm saying this doesn't really make sense. But I was so happy to be relieved from this pain, right? I'm a single mother of three kids. I can't, like, I got to go. I got to keep going. And, um, you know, it, it didn't take that long before it became unmanageable in terms of, you know, what was I doing? And, and it just, you know, it escalated. Now, there's no doubt when I look back on it, you know, I already had a problem with alcohol, right? But I was what they call pretty high functioning, like it wasn't interfering with my everyday life. But then once I added the opiates, it just went, you know, it went, my life was on fire, right? And things happened that I just, you know, are related to my substance use disorder. But I remember very clearly being in my doctor's office initially and having a discussion about the, you know, the medication and him saying to me, you know, Susan, you know, there's support that if you are really having pain, which I was really having pain, that you won't become, you know, addicted. I mean, I remember him telling me like it was yesterday. 
So, and I think he, he believed it, right? Now, there were certainly physicians in the crowd, you know, who were saying, whoa, 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 this is not a good idea. But nobody was really listening to them, right? So, I mean, there was certainly a group who are now pretty prominent because the, the, the complicated issue, right, medically, is how do you manage people with chronic pain? How do you help them? So that has to be looked at and turned around. And in large part, you know, the problem is always that the physicians may have gotten a guidance that goes the other way, right? So now it's like, in some cases, you know, your arm has to be cut off before they'll give you even a mild pain relief. But the truth and the reality is somewhere in the middle. So somebody who has chronic pain needs relief, but you have to consider tolerance, dependence, and all the other effects. So those people who have it need other alternatives to treating it. I mean, maybe it's biofeedback, maybe it's yoga, maybe it's physical therapy, maybe it's a whole bunch of other things. But, you know, that's the, but that's how it escalated, right? So now we're back to a place where hopefully there's reasonable prescription practices and we don't have physicians just writing, you know, months and months of opiates without any, you know, regard to that. And, and at the same time, we're addressing people who do have pain. I mean, for example, right, there is, there are people, depending on your history, that will post-operatively, let's say you have surgery, right? They'll give you methadone as opposed to, an, you know, something that has the uh, effect of giving you, like giving you a buzz, <laughs> right? So yeah. it's more even and you don't become, you know, because the the addiction is complicated. It's a, it's a physiological reaction. It's a it's an emotional reaction. It's a lot of stuff. So you got to really look at the whole patient to get out of that, you know, to do it properly. And how did you as a patient get yourself out of it? Well, because I think I'm, you know, so smart. Um, actually, you know, defiant might be is I threw up at home for a couple of weeks. And I, you know, I'm not recommending that. It was not a pleasant way to detox. And I started going to back to 12-step meetings. Um, you know, had done it before, hadn't really, you know, done it too effectively. And uh, I was really, really desperate. And it was time to let go. And that's how I started the journey. And I'm really glad that that's, you know, I mean, my opiate addiction um, in some ways is what brought me to my knees, right? Because I was kind of functioning as an alcoholic. So, you know, it, that's what I did. I'm, I'm not saying, I mean, there are medical reasons to get medically detoxed from certain medications, right? You know, mine was opiate, so cold turkey, you know, had some risk to it. But, like, if you are an individual that is... Um, let's call it addicted to benzodiazepines, you know, you may really need medical assistance to help you detox, but that's only the beginning, right? So that's the point, you know, being detox is one thing to make you medically stable, but <clears throat> to 
support people who are recovering from this disorder, uh, more is needed. Yeah, I mean, for most people, they need some sort of support system. Some people go inpatient treatment, some people don't, um, and maybe stick to a 12-step program. Some find other avenues. But I think what's clear is that for people to maintain, you know, remission, sobriety, uh, you know, not pick up a drug or a drink again, there, there needs to be more than just say no. Yeah, just stopping because that's usually I don't think too effective. No, yeah, there's an, um, definitely a mental emotional factor that has to go into it, and right. From what from what I've seen from um, people who have succeeded in recovery, they've replaced it with something like they they found God. You know, as a good example, they found the gym, and they they just found other things to to work their brain into. And that seems to have made it work. But, you know, going cold turkey for people that don't know, that's you were dope sick for about two weeks. Yeah, it wasn't. I'm not recommending it. It was not fun. And it was very unpleasant. But you raise a really good point. How do you stay sober? Well, for me, and I can speak for myself, I mean, what I found helpful is what I'm doing now professionally and personally. So, you know, I, because I'm at the stage of life now that I have some opportunity to focus on what I want to focus on, which is representing survivors of sexual abuse and representing survivors of poor substance abuse treatment. So those are the cases I bring. I sue treatment centers. And I'm just going to talk about what happens in treatment centers and why I think all of it needs to be looked at. Right. So the traditional way of treating had to also do with your ability to pay. Right. So for many years, there was only treatment for the poorest of the poor or the richest of the rich. And um, two things happened, which were good things, but had unforeseen consequences. The Affordable Care Act was passed and the Mental Health Parity Act was passed, which is the most important. So under law in before, I think it was either 2008 or 2009, a health insurance company, if you were an employee, you know, had a health insurance for your employee could arbitrarily cap treatment for mental illnesses, including substance abuse. So they could literally say, listen, you had one treatment, one round, that's it for the year. You would never treat any other illness like that diabetes, heart disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary, whatever, right? You, there's no arbitrary caps. It has to be medically necessary. So that was the good thing. The bad thing that happened is that a lot of people who don't belong in this space started opening up treatment centers. And particularly in South Florida, you've got what you know we call the Florida shuffle. So the young person who's covered under mom or dad's insurance would get shipped down to Florida to go to treatment. And you know there was no understanding of what really goes on in treatment. There was no communication. The parents' expectations were like, my child is going to go and get cured, right? Like it's like just going to happen. And uh, like a car wash. But that's not the reality of this mental illness. 
So when I talk about what I do to keep myself, you know, on the straight and narrow, part of it is service to the rest of the world, right? Like I grow and I get a lot from helping other people. Now, some of that is through my legal work and a lot of it's through my volunteer work. So, you know, in South Florida, uh, we opened up recovery community organizations, of which I'm the vice president of the new one in Palm Beach County. But the purpose of that is, is about engagement and information as well as resources. So again, you know, this is also demographically, uh, you know, the people who get treatment are the ones with money, not the poor people, right? But at the same time, you know, and I, I think the American Society of Addiction Medicine might argue with me, but there's there's not really long-term evidence that treatment works as it's set up now. Because you may go to a treatment center, right? Spend 30 days, 40 days or whatever, but you, you still have to live in the world. So what are what are the things you have to learn how to do if you're gonna be sober? You need to learn how to deal with life on life's terms. So, you know, whatever comes at you, life's going to happen, whether you're sober or you're not, but how do you react to it? So tragedies to successes, right? So for me, as a drug addict and an alcoholic, tragedy was, was I functioned better in tragedy than I did with success, which doesn't make sense. So what do you have to do? I think, you know, service is how you it's an individual in recovery, you start to feel connected to the rest of the human race. And you start to talk about opportunities for service. So, you know, being on that board and being on a couple of other boards that have to do with this, like uh, the Florida Association of Recovery Residences, which is the credentialing agency in Florida for sober homes, as they're called. I am, Massachusetts has one too. Um, you know, I'm their pro bono lawyer just because I was in the right place at the right time, like hanging around the group and trying to help them. But that has been extremely challenging and rewarding, right? Because it's no accident that I am, you know, at the stage I am, I'm a registered nurse, you know, I'm a trauma survivor, I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict, and I'm a lawyer. Right? So, you know, what right, I- interesting put, combination. Right. So when I put all these things together, you know, I have to think to myself that there is some purpose for that, right? So as a lawyer, I spent the majority of my career as a medical malpractice litigator because, of course, I'm a nurse and a lawyer. I speak, you know, I know how to read medical records. And- um and I didn't go to treatment to get sober, and I'm, and that's just my experience. But what happened as I was going to 12 AA meetings, frankly, uh, I started to see, you know, these young people coming to South Florida, getting, you know, being brought to the meetings in the little minivan and, you know, the same thing over and over again. And then I started hearing these stories about essentially human trafficking, drug trafficking and bad people running the treatment centers or owning and operating them. And that's really important because up until more recently, the same analysis that was done 
for the individual who wanted to bring a case against their doctor for overprescription is used in substance abuse treatment. So if somebody relapses, has a recurrence of their substance use disorder within a treatment facility, you blame the patient, right? That 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 model is not how we're going to help people, right? We need to address why an individual would pick up a drink or a drug after having a little clean time. You're like, what's that about, right? Because you don't need to drink and you don't need to drug, right? So what's why do people still feel the need to pick it up again, right? You got to address the causes and conditions. You got to get people engaged. In, and whether they go to 12-step meetings or they find another way to do that is the way that we all help each other and I think is the road to recovery, you know, to living, you know, full, satisfying, productive lives, whatever it looks like. It doesn't have to be, you know, it, it doesn't have, ours all don't have to be the same. So that's really important to me. You know, when I started looking at the substance abuse treatment facility cases as a medical malpractice registered nurse who's read a, a, an amazing amount of records in my life, I was like, what is this stuff? Like, I was shocked at how little was in the records, right? And that they were, and I'm not against forms, no problem with that, but like if I took 10 charts of 10 different people, they would all say the same thing. That's not, you know, how to reach people. So, you know, one of the things is looking at where should this opiate money go? Like where should the money to the states and the counties and the municipality to help those who are suffering, how are we going to help them? Is formal substance abuse treatment the answer? I, not necessarily because you haven't solved the underlying problems. So if you have a, you know, let's say you got an 18 or 19 year old, you know, who he graduated high school, but he's got not, not much in the way of college, right? And he has a pretty significant substance use disorder. You know, are you gonna help that individual, you know, finish school or get a trade or do something, right? You can't just say, ta-ta, see you now. Like, you know, it has to be much broader than that if we're going to attempt to, and it's not ever going to go away, but to at least make it much less than the amount of people who are dying every day from their substance use disorder. So let me ask you, when you're talking about recovery centers in South Florida, um, how difficult is it to get a license or do you have to get a license to open a Recovery center. I mean, what what are the qualifications? Well, the the ones that we're talking about are community based organizations. So the money comes from the counties. These are county or town um, driven. So the money comes from grants and from taxpayers and the like. I mean, it's an investment. You know, some of it is some will be the opiate settlement money right, to look at that, to make sure it's a broad access, because that was a big discussion in the opioid, in the opiate litigation was, what are we going to do if we win? You know, if we get money, how's it going to be divided? How's it going to work? So in Palm Beach County, it is the result of 
a, an individual, um, his name is John Kulik, and he's actually from New Jersey, who got hired here to be the quote-unquote drug czar, but that's not really what he is. He's really a, a community um, leader with who works for Palm Beach County that was trying to come up with solutions for, you know, what do we do? We don't want people dying in the streets anymore. And so this particular recovery community organization is a brainchild of his, but they are all over the country now. And they are largely funded by grants and or taxpayers. I'm sure there may be some that are funded by private, you know, entities. And this one is now a 501c3. So we will be doing some community fundraising. So you don't have the, you know, there's no, um, you, the problem with substance abuse treatment, private substance abuse treatment is they make money when the people are sick. They don't make money when people are well. So, you know, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So even if you're a patient who really doesn't fit in this place, you're going to get there because you have great insurance and blah, 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 right? So, you know, yeah. this, this isn't, you know, making me a socialist, but in my opinion, healthcare and substance abuse treatment really should be in the not-for-profit space. Now, in, you know, different states have different things. I mean, Massachusetts, I think you have a lot of, you know, uh, you have Harvard there, you have a lot of medical school type institutions. But in Florida and large parts of the South, the, the hospitals are for-profit hospitals. And that just changes the dynamic. I don't, you know, I don't care what anybody says about that. That's my opinion, right? And it's not that not-for-profits are the end-all be-all, but it changes the relationship with the community. Yeah, I, I can see that. I is up here. There's a lot of um, private recovery centers, and it's all about the money. I'm and afraid so. Have you got the insurance, or you don't have the insurance? And how many beds can we fill? And and the the big thing is, some, you know, if you call up and you to say, I don't, I don't have any money, or I've only got Mass Health, which doesn't pay much, um, they'll tell you they don't have any beds. Right. And, they, and they might have a whole ring wing of beds that, that are empty because right. they because you don't have that the big the big insurance policy that we want or your father isn't running a isn't a CEO of a major corporation you know correct so, so I mean but we also need to look and I think there are people really looking at this is you know the like you wouldn't take somebody's gallbladder out if there was no evidence that that, that a cholecystectomy could, you know, cure or remediate your gallbladder disease, right? But we do a lot with re respect to substance abuse treatment without a lot of long-term clinical evidence that it does anything, right? And, you know, and that to me is the, the new tragedy of substance use disorder and also the result of the opioid epidemic. I mean, it's all interrelated because now you got a lot more people seeking help um, because they're now, uh, they suffer from opioid use disorder 
and they need that kind of medical intervention. So what's the answer? I don't 100% know, but I think it's going to be some combination of what we have, but maybe something that is more engaging with the long-term aspects of to how to live, you know, a peaceful, ha happy life as best you can. Yeah, I mean, do these recovery the centers, do they, do they believe in medically assisted treatment like Suboxone and uh, and different, you know, buprofamine and so forth? Do they, do they go down that, that road? Well, I think among the actual licensed substance abuse treatment centers and probably, it, you know, that's much more ex widely accepted. The problem in a lot of states, Florida is no exception, is that the people who generally operate, and this is not all people, right? But there's a lot of resistance in the recovery community to medication. You know, it's it's grounded in their belief that, you know, a drug is a drug is a drug, right? And somewhat of a misapplication of the big book, the 12, you know, the 12 steps, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which was written in, you know, the 30s. But, you know, I say to them, those who are resisting. So now there's medication that particularly among opiate sufferers and now even alcoholics has been shown to help with the brain disease, right? So if you are an opiate abuser for a long time, when you stop, your brain chemistry needs to get recircuited. I, I, and that's not the most articulate way to say it, but that's what we're talking about, right? So, yeah. right, so maybe you need to be on antidepressants, right? Maybe you need other things that will help support that. You know, a lot of the medications that are out there for the treatment of opiate use disorder help do that, right? They help the brain uh, adjust to its new life. And, you know, there's debates on whether you should be on it forever or taper or whatever. I'm not going to get into that debate, but the resistance to it also has to stop, right? Because, you know, when... Um, Dr. Bob and Bill wrote the big book. They didn't have statins either, right? They didn't have cholesterol-busting drugs. They didn't have a lot of stuff, right? I mean, science yeah. has moved on, right? I mean, at the time in the 30s, there was virtually no medication that was accepted for treatment uh, for depression and a lot of other things. You know, all of those drugs and medications have changed over the years through science and study. So, you know, there is still resistance out there for Matt. And I mean, just like anything else, it can be abused or misused, but used properly. It's a great tool for a number of people who have opiate use disorder or, you know, even um, alcoholics and things like that, that are very supportive. But again, I go back to the solution is what? It's more than just stopping the drugs, right? It's much more yeah. than that. So if you understand that this is a, it's, it's not, you know, it's not a bunch of people, bad people trying to get well, say, uh, get good. It's sick people trying to get well, right? That's so, good. Yeah. yeah. So you look at, look at somebody who's suffering with this as somebody who's suffering an illness. I mean, that's what they're not bad people. They may have done bad things, 
under the throes of substance use disorder, right? Maybe they stole from their family and, and, and things like that. But, you know, that's in reaction to their brain being held hostage by the drugs. I mean, it really is true. Like that commercial, I don't think they have it anymore. You know, brain on drugs where they have the frying eggs. That, that was, was a long time ago. That was that, a long time. Yeah, but that is actually really what it is. I mean, you ingest it and your brain is, you know, takes over. And that's what happens to people who are in the throes of their substance use disorder. The big thing that, you know, right now in politics, everybody thinks if you seal the border off, you're going to end the, the, the fentanyl problem. And, you know, and, and even if you stopped all fentanyl coming into America, you'd still have substance use disorder you know in the of course and but it doesn't seem like some a lot of people just don't seem to understand that they just think and they don't realize why we have people who take fentanyl right. that's what where, where do they take it is you know they it's available that's why they take it but at the same time um if they didn't take they used to be that they took black tar heroin and regular heroin and that was the drug of choice a few years ago, and, and in my opinion, now that we have legalized marijuana everywhere, we don't have marijuana smugglers like we used to, because so they so they're now working on the fentanyl approach, because it's easy to get into the country because it's small, it's packaged, you know, simple simply and can be disguised. But even if you took it all off the street, that isn't right. going to solve the problem, you know. Correct. I mean, to 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 think that the problem would be solved if we just stopped the fentanyl is naive, right? It's just, that's not how that's not what this is about. I mean, fentanyl is an opportunist killer, no question, right? But if it, if it wasn't fentanyl, it would be something else, and so that's the point, right? Because I mean, we've all heard of the different drugs along the years that kind of show up in things. And the other, you know, the other thing that that fentanyl has done by by being all over the place, I mean, it is really risky to be a drug addict more so than it used to be. Because even if you don't think you're buying fentanyl, it's it's mixed in the stuff, and you don't know. I mean, so you see more of the sudden deaths um, that, you know, we had hoped to move past, but that's what happens, right? So, you know, and it's particularly risky in the population who has actually stopped using drugs and picks up again because they have no tolerance, you know, so they, they you know, are they succumb to this terrible drug, but it's, you know, I mean, it's not a border problem. It's a, you know, if if it was just that, um, then it would might be the easy solution. But you know, if you there's a will, there's a way. I mean, there's other ways to get drugs in the country, right? I mean, heroin isn't legal anywhere, and you know, right. it still comes in. Cocaine was, you know, the drug of the '80s and still around. You know, so it, it's it's. As long as there are people who are suffering, there's going to be substance use disorder. Well, so let me ask you the um, it, you were you were doing before we got involved with the drugs. You were working with women who had 
sexual assault and a lot of other things there. How's the component with that? Do, do you find doctors still, you know, do they still give out? What do they give for that kind of person? Are they giving them opioids to calm them down? Like there used to be Valium was the thing for right. everything. You know? Well, yeah. I mean, you raise a very good point about a population. So I would tell you there are studies to support that 75% of the women who have substance use disorder have had a tra traumatic experience from a adult or quasi-adult sexual assault to, you know, uh, child abuse and sexual abuse as children. So, you know, this is, that's why it's, a, so what they're doing, frankly, is self-medicating, right? Like if you're using heroin or something, or you're using opiates, you know, you're trying to escape or Valium or what have you. So, I mean, that's the trauma is what needs to be addressed, right? I mean, and, and to talk about that is important in the context of how we treat people who have been through a traumatic event, you know, because there was a time, I think we're, we're seeing less of it where, you know, you would may report this to your doctor and he may, he really felt bad for you. So he's giving you a ton of Valium and other stuff, you know, because you are anxious. Well, I mean, that isn't addressing the problem, nor is it helping the problem. I mean, there's a lot of women who are in my demographic, my age group, who may have been survivors that are taking a ton of tranquilizers, you know, that's not a long-term solution to treating the underlying anxiety and trauma. It just isn't because I mean, you can't, it's not sustainable in the law. I mean, there's, even if you don't abuse the drugs, right. You know, there are long-term consequences to using those types of medications in terms of your own mental acuity and other organs. Right. I mean, it's you can't keep taking that stuff forever without cons physical consequences to say nothing of the emotional, mental consequences. Yes, I, I, I met a woman who who eventually died and I asked her how why she was on Oxycontin and how did she, why did they give her a prescription? And I was waiting to hear, oh, my had a back problem or neck injury or something. And she said, no, my her sister got killed by a, by a train and the doctor prescribed her 20 milligrams of oxycontin twice a day this is a, i i don't know how like that makes no sense to me because certainly that's not the appropriate use of oxycontin right i mean 20 right. milligrams twice a day because you are traumatized you know i think it could make you feel okay for a while but not without consequences I mean, there's no, I mean, there's emotional pain, no doubt, but, you know, you didn't have a broken arm. I mean, that's not appropriate. No, it's I know. Fine. She eventually overdosed on methadone. Right. And that's she died. You know, she was. That's tragic. It, it so is. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the, the issue is how do we address, you know, the things that bring people to, you know, I say this all the time. Let me try to rephrase this. Drug addicts are born and made. Okay. This is my, this is not a medical opinion. What do I mean by that? 
you know, the propensity or the genetic predisposition to be an alcoholic or drug addict is something you're born with, right? I mean, some people use drugs, some people use food, some people do other things that are, you know, might help them at the moment, but are really self-destructive to deal with their underlying pain. So how do you deal with that? You got to, you know, you got to go to the source and learn coping mechanisms and get support. So the more we as a society talk about this stuff, the the less shame there is in in this. I mean, you know, there was a time where you could, if you were a woman and were sexually assaulted and, you know, went out and told people, you know, in the Puritan days, they would have killed you. They would have stoned you to death, right? Um, yeah. Talk about trauma, right? So, you know, I think that's a lot better. So, you know, the Me Too movement has helped, you know, and I say that the more we talk about it, it's like a rising tide raises all ships. So the more we talk about these other kinds of things, meaning trauma and the rest of it, the more we're likely to be able to help each other, right? And if you end up, you know, drinking and drugging and you're now in that camp, you know, how do we get, how do we help people get back out and, you know, on the straight and narrow? And that's what we should be doing for each other. And and actually, when I, I think the biggest epidemic coming forward is going to be the addiction to gambling. The Another amount- problem. They, they've opened the laws now to gamble on sports so much in almost every state now that um, it's going to be, you'll see that so many people are going to be in deep financial debt. They're going to resource to other things like robbing banks and doing whatever because they're going to have to pay the, pay the piper on all the money they've lost. Sure. And that's going to be a huge problem. Isn't it? I suffered from that 35 years ago and and I, and I understand the addiction of gambling, you know, and, and now I can't even watch a sporting event anymore without them asking me if I want to bet on the who's going to get the first basket in the in the third quarter. You know, it's like totally insane the amount and you can could spend hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars. As long as you have credit on your on your credit card, you can you're going to just flash it out there and you realize that the house never loses. Eventually, everybody will lose, you know, and and now we're going to have to deal with that. And a lot of them will turn to opioids or turn to alcohol to kind of. Right. It's just it's another it's another, you know, leg on the, the horse, if you will. I mean, you know, whether you use drugs, whether you gamble, whether you over or under eat. Right. I mean, all of these things are related to that attempt to make yourself feel better, right? To relieve you from whatever. I mean, what you you could probably articulate, what is the high you get from gambling, right? I mean, there's a whole emotional, physiological reaction to that, you know, I'm putting my money on this. I could be rich, right? Or I just, you know, I want to beat the house. There's that thing that goes and once you get sucked into it it's no different than drugs and alcohol or even whatever it's the same disease it just shows up differently right 
And so that's what we need to talk about more and more and more. And I can't, and I won't stop talking about it because I do think there is a way out. I don't think it's hopeless. I'm very optimistic because I do see changes that are coming in the, in the years that I've been involved in this, I see some positive stuff coming out. Well, so to wrap it up, because we're just about out of time, what would be the, what would be the Susan's version of how we're going to fix this? You know, is there a, what, what is your your bottom line that you want to see happen? I want people to talk about this without shame and fear. Right. I want people to know they're not alone. You know what? One of the reason I speak about myself is because I don't look like a drug addict. Right. I'm a a 66 year old woman with gray hair who's a grandma. Right. I am no different than the kid who is under a bridge with a needle in his arm. Right. We are the same. We have the same disease. I think that will change the hearts and minds of the world as to what we're talking about. And the more that people talk about it, the better off we're going to be. Then laws get changed. And 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 that's important. I mean, laws have to be addressed the times that we are in. So for example, one of the great, you know, Things that I, I'm really happy to be a part of is being part of any, you know, a, something called the, the State's Attorney Addiction Recovery Task Force, which um, at this juncture in my involvement is about looking at laws as to how we can support people in spaces where they're either getting help or referrals and stuff and start looking at people differently. You know, today, when I was at the grand opening of the Lake Worth Recovery Community Organization, I I talked to a young man who helps people who get out of prison, right? Like if we don't want people to keep, uh, uh, you know, committing crimes, we have to figure out ways to help them get on the straight and narrow. Part of it is getting sober, right? And, And being in recovery. Part of it is having help to get jobs and job skills and things like that, education. That's the way we're going to do it. So, you know, the more that we can get our governments, our, the people who we voted into office to be in this space and to try to work together to find solutions, whether through laws, you know, and support and organizations, the more likely it is to happen. And I really, really believe that. And, uh, and, you know, I think that every single person who's been touched by this disease, and it could be family member, I don't care, you know, has something to contribute to the solution. So the more you and your show talks about it, the more I talk about it, the more, you know, you have a bigger audience, they can get involved. It could be, you know, listen, I'm going to get look into the recovery community organization, or I'm going to see if I can volunteer, you know, at a place, whether it be a homeless shelter or some sort of community organization that addresses people with substance use disorder, or they want to get more involved. Every person has a voice. Every person needs to be heard. And this is what will change it. I'm 100% convinced of that. Okay, there you have it. There you have it. We've been listening to 
Susan Ramsey from Florida. I'll say Southern Florida because I'm not quite sure where you live down there. From Southern Florida, and uh, we want to thank her very much for her time and all of her insight on everything that we've learned today. And uh, there, there is help out there if you're somebody who's listening and you've got addiction issues. Um, get the resources. Go after. There is help. If you want it, you can do it. And get get to an AA meeting. Do what you know. This just get out there and get get finding information. And uh, this is Tony LaGreca, and this is the Courage to Hope. And we really thank you for all for taking your time out this afternoon and listening to our show. Thank you so much for having me, and but thank you so much. I really mean it. It's been a great pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you.